I'm so proud of you being here. And you, you, you know, I, I never tell you, I can never tell you enough just how much I love you and how grateful I am to get to be your shepherd. We're in a series called Healthy. And we talked in the first week about the ultimate premise of health, which is that the healthier we are, the more our world expands. And the less healthy we are, our world begins to shrink. And so we've talked about health generally. Last week we talked about physical health, but today I want to tackle the most important of the healthy series. See, the thing about it is we're at various stages of physical health. Some here are very healthy. Some of us are less healthy, and some of us have just been dealt a situation in life where because of physical challenges, we're never going to be relatively even healthy. But the thing about it is you can be spiritually healthy even if your body's not as healthy as you would wish, and you're going to be fine. On the other hand, you can be buff, ripped, and in the best of shape physically, but if you're not spiritually healthy, then your world's going to be very small. And so I am more concerned about this topic than any other. And I will just be honest with you right out of the box that I only intended to spend one week here, but as I began to prep for this message, I only got about half of the way through what I wanted to share, and I realized that there was a whole message here. So I'm going to come back next week and finish up what we start today, but I want to talk to you about being spiritually healthy. And right out of the box, we need to challenge a statement that's very popular in our nomenclature today. I talk to many people, oftentimes young uh, adults, and they will say this to me. They will say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm a spiritual person. And right, right, right at the beginning, I understand what they mean by I'm not religious. I mean, we all get turned off by the systematic uh, religion. And so when they say I'm not religious, I don't have a problem with that because I, I, I don't think religion is the answer. But when they tell me I'm spiritual, I don't think 99% of them have any idea what they mean or what they're talking about. What they're really trying to say is I am open to there being more than I can sense with my five senses. They're saying I'm open to the metaphysical or I'm open to the possibility that there is something beyond the material world. Now, that's, a, that's an okay starting point, but that's not at all. That's not even remotely close to what it means to be spiritual. In fact, the reality is there are probably millions of Americans in churches today who don't know what it means to be spiritual. And so today, I'm going to take some time to just begin our discussion of being spiritually healthy and just to follow flight plan with you. I, I want us to talk today about what it means to be spiritual, and then beyond that, we're going to begin to talk about what it means to grow in our spirit. So what, is, what does it mean to be spiritual? Since we've already said that probably 99% of people who say they're spiritual don't even have the first idea what it means. What does it mean to be spiritual? Okay. First of all, God is Trinity. God is three in one. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God. And that's a mystery. And, no, and, and please don't come to me after the service and say you can explain the Trinity because you can't. I know you can't. And if you're wise, you know you can't. I've had so many people say the stupidest. If I had a nickel for every stupid thing said in church, I'd be a rich man. But I've had people say, oh, the Trinity, that's like water. It's like, you know, water can be vapor. It can be fluid. It can be solid. There you go, three in one. No, God's not like water. Some have told me the Trinity is like the egg. You know, you got the shell and the white and the yolk. No, God's not like an egg. God's not like anything. He is who he is and what he is. The problem that we have with the Trinity is we, we get it wrong. <laughs> you know, the Bible says we are made in God's image, not God is made in our image. And what happens is we tend to look at our world and we try to process how it's feasible that someone could be three in one. But it is true. 
and it's mystery, and we're never going to understand it completely. It is just God revealing something about himself that he asks us to take by faith. That's for a different day. What I want to talk about is the Trinity that you are. You are Trinity as well, and this is where it does come down that you're made in God's image. You have three parts, three in one. You are body, you are soul, and you are spirit. Now, I think even people who are not people who would consider themselves spiritual or religious would at least admit that there is a part of us that is that is material and there is a part of us that is not material. Now, for a while, especially in evolutionary psychology, there was the idea that there's no such thing as the mind. It's just the activity of the brain. But fortunately, even, even good science, not even science that's based on intelligent design, is realizing that it's so much more than the brain. The brain is the organ the mind uses. So all of us understand there is a part of us that is material and there's a part of us that is non-material. That's okay. And I think even, even those of us here, here today would, would find that a small, small hurdle to leap. I am material, I'm non-material. There's a part of me that is physical, there's a part of me that is beyond physical and hard to explain. The tougher challenge, though, in assessing who we are as a trinity is understanding the distinction between the soul and the spirit. That is a real challenge. So if we're going to understand what is spiritual, then we, we need to know more than there is a body and an unbody part of us. We need to understand what the soul is and what the spirit is. With that in mind, I'm going to ask for a whole lot of patience today. I don't know that you could call this a sermon. This is a workshop. And, and what we're going to do is I'm going to try to lay out the biblical case, and there's going to be a lot of scripture here for us to look at. So I've got the monitor on stage with me. This is going to be on the iMag. If you have the New Spring app, these scriptures are going to be up there. Let me tell you why that's so important today. We're going to go into an area that's rarely ever talked about in life, and only a handful of people really completely understand. And so I need to just say what I say so often here. I'm well cognizant of the fact that you don't drive as far as you drive today on the ice to hear what I have to say. You need to hear what God has to say. And, you, and many of you are so gracious to me and you love me as your pastor, but all I'm saying is this. Someday you're going to be in your, in your situation in life where you get a diagnosis from a doctor and the doctor's going to say, we've done everything we can do. And when you're there, you're going to need so much more than Mark says. You're going to need to know what does God say. Or you're going to be in a situation where your life gets turned upside down in 30 seconds. And you're going to try to figure out how you're going to take another breath and keep going with your life. You need to know at that moment, what does God have to say? I mean, I'm grateful for your kindness to me as your pastor, but I'm not an authority. I'm responsible to obey the same truth that you are. I'm a fellow traveler with you. I'm just exercising my gift. So today, I'm going to ask your indulgence for us to look at a lot of scripture as we lay out the biblical case for what is the spirit and what is the soul. Now, we're going to begin with a very intriguing verse in the Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 4 and the 12th verse, where the Bible says the word of God is living and active. Now, we're not, that's not exactly what we're talking about here, but let's just stop for a moment. Why should the Bible be part of your life every day? For the reason you just saw. The Bible is living and it's active. I know, I know hearing me talk and my grammar, it's probably hard for you to believe I taught English at one time in my life. But I was bivocational in my early 20s and actually taught English. And I have a, a, a love for literature. And I have certain favorite genres of literature that I love very much. 
But I will just be honest with you, as one who loves literature, when you read Chaucer once, you pretty well get what Chaucer has to say. When you read Dickens once, you pretty well get what Dickens has to say. One time is just about enough to read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, right? I mean, it's fine. I mean, and and I, I appreciate that literature and I love it, but here's what makes the Bible very different. I can read scriptures that I've read a thousand times and I'll get something new and fresh out of it. Why? Because the word of God is living and it's active in our life. And so when you engage God's word in your life every day, then you're putting life into your body. Now, into your soul. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Look at this. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. Now, look at the word, the Greek word, I put, I, this, I put that in there. The Greek word for soul is suki. It, you, you recognize that. Basically, any word that has psyche or psyche at the beginning as a prefix, that's what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with the mind. Or some could expand the concept of soul to be mind, uh, emotions, and will. But primarily, the soul is the mind. And, and we recognize those terms from psyche. Uh, but then the Bible says that the word of God is so powerful that it even divides psyche, soul, mind, and spirit, pneumatos. Now, you recognize that prefix from, from pneumonia, pneumatic. It has to do with breath. And it goes in concept here back to Genesis chapter 1, where when God made us, he breathed the breath of life into us. So let's just stop for a moment. The soul and the spirit, that part of you that is soul, that part of you that is spirit, is two different parts. The soul is primarily the psyche, the mind, and the spirit here is, well, it's the part of you that's God-aware. It's the part of you that's God-conscious. It's the part of you that knows God's presence. Frankly, we just came out of a worship service. The spirit is the part of you that is able to worship. And I don't want to get off on this too much right now, but I think in churches all over America today, there are people who look at the song service as just something that you go through. And it's like it's, they're never really part of that. Well, and, and I understand that we're going to, our style of worship is going to be different and, and our personality comes into play there. But your ability to worship comes back to your spirit. If a person is not spiritually alive, they cannot worship. I mean, it's impossible for them to worship. But look at this. Just to make sure that you understand that I'm not just coming at this from my own vantage point, Jesus one day was talking to a woman who was in a different religion. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, and he was bringing the Jewish scriptures, but this woman was a Samaritan. She had a whole different belief system. It would be like if someone came to you today and said, you are a Christian, but I am a Hindu, or you're Christian, and I'm Buddhist. This is kind of the conversation that Jesus is in with this woman. And so when they begin to talk about faith, it is natural for this woman to think about her system, her style of worship. And she says to Jesus, you Jews say that you ought to worship like this, but we Samaritans do this. It is to that that Jesus speaks these words. He said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Well, what kind of worshipers would the Father not necessarily be looking for, or what kind of worshipers would he want to correct? Well, those who worship in body, material, 
a sense of physical appreciation, are those who worship intellectually. Now, there's nothing wrong with you worshiping and your physical nature being engaged. There's nothing wrong with you worshiping, definitely nothing wrong with you worshiping and your mind being engaged. But what Jesus is saying is it begins with the spirit. We have a problem, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to get off on a tangent. We have a huge problem in American so-called Christianity. First off, our kind of, and I'm not talking about New Spring necessarily, I'm just talking about it as a culture as a whole. Our our kind of Christianity doesn't bear much resemblance to the Chinese Christians. It, it doesn't bear much resemblance to the African Christians. I mean, these are people who are putting their faith on the line and trusting God for existence itself. And when you look at the strength and the depth of their commitment to God, I mean, when you look at the believers in, in, in Africa or China or the Middle East, or certain parts of the world where India right now, because there's so much persecution in India, our kind of surface level Christianity doesn't mirror that very well. And I believe there's a reason for that, and I think we're very close to understanding why it is today. So many preachers are in the process of preaching things that appeal to the physical nature. Or they're, and it's very popular today for preachers to preach about things that attract us intellectually. We're hearing a lot of sermons today that are psychological in nature. Now, here's the deal. You need to understand, I think it's great for sermons that speak to our physical nature. I think it's great for sermons that inform us intellectually. But here's what's never going to happen in the true Christian experience. The mind is never going to inform the spirit. The body is never going to inform the spirit. What has to happen if there's the kind of worship that Jesus is after, it's the spirit must inform the mind. The spirit must inform the body. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm not saying that your worship should not engage the mind. I'm, I'm, I'm a strong believer. You guys know how I teach. I mean, I always try to lay out a rational case for what I'm bringing, just as I am right now. But at the end of the day, you cannot know God through your physical nature, and you cannot know God through just your mind, through your intellect. But we're so backward in the United States because there's this idea that if somehow we can, you know, the mind itself, the, the psychology of life ultimately will inform the spirit, and that's just never going to happen. That's why Jesus said, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a second verse that I want to show you right here that's really important. The Bible says a person who isn't spiritual doesn't accept the teachings of God's spirit. He thinks they're nonsense. He cannot understand them. He can't understand them because a person must be spiritual to evaluate them. You know, someone could say, well, you know, I'm, I'm here today and I don't know, I don't buy into any of this stuff and I think you people are fooling yourselves and I've been here and I... I don't sense God. Of course not. Of course not. Scripture is clear. If a person is not spiritually alive, they are spiritually dead. A person who's not spiritually alive, they can't appreciate God in worship any more than a corpse can smell flowers at his own funeral. And that's why some of you who are believers, who do know God, it's why sometimes you cannot understand why something that is so real to you and so powerful in your life and, and, and something that is so appreciable 
You can't understand why people you love can't sense the same thing that you sense. It is because you are spiritually alive. And the Bible says the person who is not spiritual, he can hear intellectually or physically the things that the rest of us hear, but he can't process them because those things are spiritually understood. I You're going to hear me say this several times today, and I'm really cautious about this while I'm slowing down. There are people who've been in church for years who don't understand this, and people who received Jesus last week who get it. I was talking the other day to a, a guy, nice guy, not a new Springer, successful man, and we were just talking in conversation, and I, and I like this guy a lot. But you're talking about a guy who's been in church for years. I mean, just Bible studies and, you know, just, just the, the, at least the church experience. And, and I'm not evaluating his life. I'm just listening to what he's saying to me. He's little, and we were just chatting, and he said, well, I just don't really get into worship all that much. And then he said, you know what I'm really looking for? I'm looking for like a really small church where everybody knows everybody. Now, there's nothing wrong with a small church. I mean, hey, I grew up in a small church. There's something wrong with wanting to be in a small church. Because if you understand what Jesus had to say about hell and the Great Commission, nobody should ever want a small group of Christians unless it's growing. But he wasn't interested in a growing small church. He was just interested in a place where he could be comfortable. And I thought, man, first of all, does that person even have a remote concept of the Great Commission of Jesus saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living person? And beyond that, this idea, well, I really don't like worship. And, and, here, and here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a person who knows a lot of stuff intellectually, soulish, psyche, but I'm not sure where the spirit is there. You, you follow what I'm trying to say? On the other hand, I meet people at New Spring who haven't known the Lord very long, and yet they're spiritually alive, and it's so exciting. I mean, some of you write me your stories of how you just came to faith, and you're so eloquent. I don't know how many times at breakfast, Mary Alice has read me the story of some New Springer who just came to faith, and I turn to her and I say, why do they listen to me speak? That person speaks way better than I do. Why? Because they've come spiritually alive. I'm giving you three verses. We started with John 4 where Jesus said the person who worship must worship God in spirit and in truth. And then we saw just a moment ago that a person who isn't spiritual doesn't receive these things from God. They're blocked because these things are spiritually understood. I want to give you a beautiful verse from Romans 8, 16 that I love so much. And, and here's where we're really going to begin to truly understand what the spirit is. Romans 8, 16. The spirit himself speaks... To our spirits. Now, the only way you're going to hear from God is to be spiritually alive so God's spirit can speak to your spirit. And he makes, he makes, makes us understand that we are God's children. Let, let me just kind of give you a little window into my world. I am always amazed at what touches you guys. Because I speak to thousands of you every week who are in all kinds of situations. Some of you have not yet, you've just accepted Christ. Others of you have been believers for years. You come from all kinds of life situations. 
I have never understood how God takes the same frail, weak message that I preach and he tailors it for everybody. And when I really sense this is when you speak it back to me. Because so many times people will say to me, Mark, you know, and they'll call me back to a series and they'll call me back to a specific sermon. And they'll say, that sermon changed my life. And so I'll ask them, what, what, what was it about that message that changed your life? And they'll tell me and I'll think, that wasn't what that sermon was about. I'll tell you the one that really freaks me out. Is, and, and, and you guys know I speak four times every weekend, two services on Saturday, two services on Sunday. And the sermons are never completely the same. We have new springers who watch all four sermons because the same when Mark says different things in different messages. And so a lot of times I'll say to someone, well, what changed your life? And they'll take me back to one line in a message. And I'll think to myself, I only said that in one service. And here's, and I hope you understand what I mean by this expression. I'll think to myself, that was a throwaway line. It means I just happened to think of it in the moment. It wasn't really part of the message. Just, it was just my ADD in the spiritual zone. I mean, that's basically what it is. I only said it one time. I didn't intend to see it. And someone will say, it changed my life and it brought me to Christ. Now, is that because I'm a great preacher? No. A million times, no. God's spirit spoke to that person's spirit. And God tailored the message for that person's life situation, where they were at that moment, what they were open to. I mean, the rest of the message just may have been gobbledygook, but God's Spirit spoke to them. Oh my goodness, folks, do we understand that is what the Spirit is about. It is about God talking to you and you having the capability to respond to God and hear from God. I'm sure there's a better definition for the Spirit than this, but I'm talking about the human spirit now. But from what I can draw from what we've just read, our spirit is the apparatus for communication with God. It is that part of us that God can speak to and that part of us that can speak to God. We sang a few moments ago in that song, I Saw the Light. We have traded the wrong for the right and talked about getting on a different road. If you listen to what Jesus said in that verse that led to the writer of that song, he said, there's a broad road that leads to destruction and many are on it. And he said, there's a narrow road that re- leads to everlasting life and comparably few are on it. Well, if you take that together with what we've seen today, it simply means that most people are only two-thirds alive. Now, how, how did it come down? I mean, how did we get to the place where we are born into this world spiritually dead. Let's, let's go on a scriptural journey. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You know the story how that God created the man and the woman. He said to them, you can have anything in the garden, but he said there's one tree that you don't eat of. Let's pick it up at that point. The Lord gave him, Adam, this command. You may eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree that gives knowledge about good and evil. If you eat from that tree, now look at this phrase, on that day you will certainly die. Now, here's what we do know. Adam did not die physically, did he? Lived for many more years. He did not die intellectually, but he did die spiritually. Up until that point, God had come and visited Adam and Eve every day. But now they're out of the Garden of Eden and they died spiritually. Adam's body didn't die, his mind didn't die, but his spirit died. Just in case we're not clear on that, The book of Romans comes back in chapter 5 and verse 12 and says, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, so death 
spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Physical death? No. Soulish death? Psychological death? No. But spiritual death. I understand, every one of us is born into this world two-thirds alive. We're born with a living body, we're born with a living intellect, but we're born spiritually dead. Now, if I was sitting where you're sitting right now, even if I wasn't a believer, I'd have a question on my mind. It would go something like this. Mark, if it is true that we are spiritually dead, how do we become spiritually alive? Awesome question. Because it is the question that must be answered. The only way that you and I, spiritually dead, can become spiritually alive is if God crosses over to us and with his word, he gives us the power to come back to life. Is it okay if I take a risk? Because I could, I could be misunderstood with this, and so I'm going to ask you just to give me a little latitude here. If you read about the virgin birth, that's something that's never happened before, never happened since. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, who is a skeptic, wow, that's never happened before. And I want to say, duh, that's the idea. There's only one Jesus. That's is the point. But what happened in the virgin birth? And God has this conversation with Mary before it happens. And he did ask Mary for her permission for this to happen. But Mary's asking, how can this happen? And, and God says to her, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And that which is impossible will become possible. Well, I'm asking for a little latitude here because I know that salvation isn't the same thing as the virgin birth, but in a sense, it's very similar because the way that we become spiritually alive is like the Holy Spirit sort of overshadows us and what was impossible becomes possible. Do you remember that Jesus said, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth? Well, what happens is the Spirit of God comes up with truth and the doors open. I'm always being encouraged to write books. And I can't be still long enough to write books. But I'll tell you a book I would love to write. I'd like to write a book about the stories of people who have walked in New Spring as non-theists and agnostics. And in the first service, this always amazes me, in the first service, they accept Christ. I mean, there's, I, could, I could keep you here the rest of the day telling you these extraordinary stories about somebody, their family talked them into coming, and I don't go to church, and I don't believe in God, and they come in here one time, and they walk out accepting Christ. That, to me, is amazing. Is that because I'm a great communicator never in a million years? It is because they come in here, and just exactly what we say we're talking about happens. The Spirit of God overshadows them and brings the truth of God's Word and just sort of turns the lights on. That is how a person who is spiritually dead becomes spiritually alive. And there are thousands of us here on this campus today who would have our own individual story of how this happened. Maybe we were going through a tough time. Maybe it was something that a family member or a co-worker told us. But maybe you were just out all by yourself and something in nature spoke to you or you were listening to the radio. I mean, we all have these interesting stories that are individual and signature and yet at the same time, what is universal in all these stories is that the Spirit of God just sort of overshadowed us and turned the lights on. 
all of us ought to be, especially if you're a Christ follower, you ought to be deeply in love with Ephesians 2. It's such a great chapter. I want to read part of it to you. In Ephesians 2, 4, the Bible says, God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were spiritually dead and doomed by our sins, he gave us our life back again. When he raised Christ from the dead, only by his undeserved favor have we been saved. And he lifted us up from the grave into glory along with Christ where we sit with him in the heavenly realms all because of what Christ did. That's beautiful, isn't it? Listen, I, I wasn't underperforming and God led me to performing. I was dead and God brought me back to life. See, here's the thing. This is, I, I talked about, and I'm, I'm not trying to be critical of, of pastors or churches, and I'm probably more guilty of this than I realize. We're so into improvement, and that's part of our teaching for people who already are spiritually alive. But may we always understand that you're never going to improve yourself into spirituality. I mean, improvement doesn't take a miracle. Resurrection does. And you won't get into heaven unless your spirit is resurrected. And God does that. He turns the lights on. That's why Jesus called it the new birth. He didn't call it a new plan. He called it the new birth. See, this is my problem with religion. Religions is all about improvement. I mean, how many of us have been in systematized a religion where there was always some message about here's how to improve yourself, and you sort of walk away with the impression that if I improve myself, then maybe God will be happy with me. It is like the proverbial carrot before the horse. There's all these hoops, and if you jump through them, but most of us have been in systematized religion, and we just threw up our hands and said, I can't jump through all the hoops. But have you ever noticed, if you've ever been in systematized religion, that there are inductees in that religion who try to communicate that they're spiritually pros, and yet the rest of us look back and say, I don't think so. Because although they've been to all kinds of Bible studies, which are great, they've learned all kinds of truth, they just can't even navigate simple life situations that seem to require just a little bit of Jesus-likeness. They have the trappings but they don't have the reality. This is an old story in my life, and if you're under 40, I'm going to have to translate, okay? The late 70s were just a silly time in America. Everything was silly. You know, I've lived long enough to see all the styles kind of cycle two or three times, but fortunately, we have never gone back to the late 70s. People wore strange stuff. Listen to strange music. You know, and thankfully we've never gone back to disco or, uh, you know, worn this stuff. And, but honestly, just for those of you who have, you're interested in sociological history, we had just come out of the Vietnam War and we came out of Watergate and I think we were just looking for anything that was lighthearted. But the end of the 70s were just silly, silly, silly. I mean, music was silly, clothes were silly, movies were silly, and, and fads were silly. Important point in my life, though, that's when I was in college, and Mary Alice and I got married, and I got called in my first church in the late 70s, but just some silly stuff. One of the silliest things from the late 70s was what was called the CB radio craze. <laughs> CB stood for Citizens Band. Now, let me translate for all of you who are 45 or younger. You have to understand that there were no cell phones in those days, so cell phones were like pre CB radios were like prehistoric cell phones. But they were open channels where anybody could talk to each other. And so in that sense, they were sort of like prehistoric social media. 
There is one similarity from that craze to today. People had nicknames that they were known by as they would you know, use, and those were called handles. So you do know what that term means in today's social media. But it was, it was big. For years, there had been citizens band radios, but truckers used them because they were out on the open road. They would talk to each other, and you know, they would have this sort of community going on. Again, it's kind of like social media. But somehow in the late 70s, it became a popular thing for Americans to have CB radios in their cars. And you, you really weren't cool if you didn't have one. And everybody knew if you had one because in those days, you had to have an antenna on the top of your car or on the rear deck. And if you had one, I mean, and listen, guys, the people are brand new luxury cars. They had those antennas on the back of the deck. I had a brand new Ozenbill Cutlass in 1977, but it was unadorned. There was no CB radio on it, no antenna. And I just felt like I was just below the salt. So I went out and I bought a CB radio. And, and, and there were always aftermarket products and they were like little radios that slid in under the dash. And, but I had the antenna on the back of my car. The only problem was in the 1977 Oldsmobile Cutlass, the only place to install one was right below the dashboard to the left of the steering wheel. And every time I'd get into the car, I'd bang my knee on the dumb thing. I never did talk on one. I had one, but never, never said a word on it. But I had the antenna on the back of my car. But after about six weeks of banging my knee on the thing, I thought, this is crazy. I'm going to take this thing out. And they used to just slide out. There was like a little platform, slid out, slid, slid the CB radio out, put it in my trunk. But I left the antenna up because I wanted to look cool. I graduated from college in 1978. And right after I graduated, I was called to Houston. And it was Marilyn and I were driving to Houston for me to preach in view of a call to that church. So we're, we're, we're traveling from Dallas to Houston on I-45, and, and I'm driving along, you know, and next thing I know, uh, 18-wheeler truck pulls up next to me, and he's not passing me, he's not backing up, he's just like staying right with me and where I'm going. I kind of thought that was strange, and I looked over at him, and so behind the wheel is sort of a, if you're from Texas, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's sort of a cowboy kind of guy, I had the cowboy hat on, you know, and he smiled at me, you know, while he's driving down the road. And I smiled back at him, but he didn't pass me. He didn't go back. After a minute, I looked over again, and, and, and there were, I should have told you, there's a microphone that you have, you know, kind of like on your dash. So he pulled the microphone out, held it up, and pointed to it. He wanted to talk to me. <laughs> but I can't talk to him. I got an antenna, but I don't have any apparatus for communication. It's in the trunk. So I, you know kind of did this number and kept driving. <laughs> but he, he, he didn't take a hint. I mean, he just like stayed there. And I guess first time he held them, he just held the microphone up. The second time he just thought, I guess he thought I was slow. <laughs> I am from Texas. And then he just like pulled it over to the side of the car and pointed to it. And after a while, he just gave up, and he had this sort of look like, man, you are stuck up. <laughs> See, I had the antenna, but I didn't have the apparatus for communication. That's what's wrong with religion. That's why, that's why we shrink back from it. That's why many of us gave up on it. Because we were surrounded by people that had the antenna that said they were spiritually alive, but they didn't, they didn't have the ability to, for God to speak to and for them to speak to God. And because of that... You know what we did? We just sort of said, well, I'm going to drive on. Well, as I said, I'm only going to preach half the message today, so let me just give you two points and we'll be out of here. 
With everything that we've said today, I think it needs to be said just like this. Don't let anything keep you from becoming spiritually alive. Well, how do you become spiritually alive? Well, here's the deal. If you don't have any desire to become spiritually alive, well, that's, I guess, it could be God's spirit has given up on you, or maybe, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I just know this. As long as you have a desire to know God, that means God's spirit is still working with you. Someone has asked me through the years, do you believe you can get to a place where you can ask God to save you and he won't save you? No, I don't believe that. I think as long as you desire to know God, he will always listen to you. But that means the spirit of God is still active in your life. Now, a person can go past the point where God's spirit gives up. Scripture's real clear on that. But if God is making you desire this, the only thing that you can do to become spiritually alive is what the Bible speaks of hundreds of times, and that is believe, because believing is opening the door to Jesus. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus put it this way. He said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. How do you open the door to God? You open the door to God by believing. I want to go to a sensitive place right now, and I'm going to tell you before I get there, this is sensitive, and but as I said, you come here to hear truth, not to hear me blow sunshine at you or just give you my opinion. I'm going to preach a whole talk on this, but I want to make something really clear today. There are people who say to me, well, I, I just, God hadn't made himself clear to me, but if God ever proves himself to me, then I might be open to believing him. The test is not on God to see if he can be believed. The test is on you and me to see if we can believe. I mean this in all love. If someone's here today and is like, well, I'm not going to believe unless God proves himself to me, could I just lovingly tell you, you don't have to believe. You don't have to go to heaven. Nowhere does it say that you have to believe. Nowhere does it say that you have to go to heaven. You... See, the test is not on God. He's already going to heaven. Well, someone will say, well, I don't understand then. If God is asking me to believe, but he doesn't make all things proven to me materially, then I don't understand. Well, here's the most important thing I can tell you. In fact, if I never tell you anything else, would you just please hear this? If God made everything materially proven to you, you would have no hope of responding to him because you have nothing to offer God. You have no money to offer God. You have no community service to offer God. You have nothing to offer God. He is God. He doesn't, he loves me and he wants to involve me, but God does not, it's not like I have chips that God is like trying to figure out how to get his hands on. I have nothing to offer God. You have nothing to offer God. There is only one thing that we have to give God that he does not have, and that is our confidence, our trust, our faith. Read the Bible, and this is how God blessed and interacted with people throughout the ages. They believed God like Abraham believed God, like Moses, like Elijah, like Mary, like Esther. When, when they couldn't see the outcome, they trusted God. That is the only thing that we have to offer God. If he made everything materially proven to you, you would have no hope and no way of interacting with God. He would take away the one opportunity that you have to interact with. I don't know how many times people have asked me, why doesn't God just materially prove himself to us? 
Well, first of all, God has proven himself. He's certainly given us much evidence. But I always think to me, the reason why God doesn't materially prove himself in every aspect is that it would end my opportunity, and it's his love. In Mark chapter 9, and I'm talking about proving that point. I'm, I'm an old debater, so you've got to bear with, bear with me. I learned a long time ago in debate, you, you lay out a point, you have to have evidence to back it up. And that's kind of what this sermon's about, point evidence, point evidence. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is interacting with a man whose son is in a lot of trouble. And he's tried all kinds of things to get help for his boy, and nothing has worked. So he meets Jesus, and look at this, just, just to prove what we've been talking about. The man said to Jesus, have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible to the one who believes. In effect, Jesus is saying, the onus is not on me. If I can, the question is on you. Can you believe? And again, I know that's sensitive, and I would never do anything to offend anybody. And God knows I love interacting and mixing it up with people who have questions, and I love trying to make the case. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to this one thing. The onus is not on God. He's already going to heaven. The question is on us. Can we believe? I'm spending a lot of time on this, but there's so many in churches today who are trying to develop a part of them that's dead. With that out of the way, we talked about how do, I, how do I come spiritually alive? We say God's spirit overshadows us and we have the sense that God is calling us and we open the door by believing. Now let's talk about the second thing. What happens if you believe and if you invite Jesus Christ into your life and you're spiritually alive but you're just beginning? How do you grow? Let me give you some verses and, and then we'll get out of here today because I'm already in overtime, so I'm gonna have to rush through this, but this is important. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we get introduced to a particular metaphor that we see quite a few times in the New Testament. He said, like newborn babies, thirst for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in your salvation. So how do we grow? Once we invite God's spirit into our lives, he said, we thirst for the milk of God's word. And that's important. I mean, we talked in the first week, we said, you're not going to naturally fall into health. Truth is always uphill. In order to grow, you're going to need constant messaging. So that's what Peter is saying. He's saying you should desire the milk of God's word so that you can grow up. But now we talk about something else here in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. Because Peter, the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, may have been Barnabas, but the writer of Hebrews is going to say, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, he's going to talk now about solid food in verse 14. Now, if you've been in church for a long time and grew up in a traditional church like I did, I'm going to blow your mind. Because this is a challenge for me, knowing how I grew up. When I was growing up and I used to hear preachers preach about milk and strong meat, it was sort of like milk are the simple, it's the simple concepts of the Bible. Strong meat is what you get into when you get into the really complicated stuff. Milk is for babies, people who haven't been saved very long. It's the simple things of God. But man, when you get into the complex, deep stuff, what the Greek says and the Hebrew and all that, you know, and the deep Bible studies you're into meat, that's not at all what the Bible is talking about. 
I want you to read the rest of this verse with me. Solid food belongs to those who are of a full age, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. See, milk is not simple. God's not here talking about milk and meat in regard to the essence of those two things. This is a metaphor that refers to the process. You, you look at a baby, a baby cannot feed himself, so consequently he's responsible to somebody else to feed him. Someone who is able to eat solid food is able to prosecute their own diets. So it doesn't have to do with the essence of milk and the essence of meat, it's the process involved. And the fact of the matter is, there are people who've been in churches 35, 40 years, and they've been, and, and if you listen to them talk, oh, and there's nothing wrong with Bible studies. They're wonderful. We have them here at New Spring. They're, they're, they're critically important. But they, they, they will talk to you about, oh, I love this teacher. I just, just oh, I love this teacher. And I download these podcasts. And, and, and yet you get to know them, and it's sort of like, do they even know the first thing about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus? But if you talk to them, it's like, oh, it's strong meat. No, 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 it's not strong meat. It's not strong meat until we act on the word of God. Until it's something that we put to work in our lives. I mean, if you went out to lunch with friends and you're sitting down at the restaurant and everybody's opening a menu and, and there's one lady at the table and she just like opens up a bag and pulls out a bottle and starts drinking the bottles like, that's a little quirky. I didn't, that's weird. You know, some of you, you know, see, I imagine guys, burly guys in a construction site, and you're opening up your metal lunch pail, and some guy opens up his lunch pail, pulls out a couple of bottles, starts drinking a bottle. It's like. Now, now, milk is nourishment, right? I mean, I, I agree with that. But you understand, God's saying, and we saw this in the book of Hebrews, that meat, strong meat, adult food, is when you begin to exercise the word of God. And you don't just hear it, but you act on it. You begin to obey it, and it's so real to you that you say, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. Not necessarily to be in church for 30 years. James put it this way. He said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Um, I'm hopelessly into overtime. Can I have three more minutes to tell you something critical? This is, this is risky. About 15 years ago, we decided that our church was going to be a different kind of church. And although we did many good things up to that point, and I've been pastor for almost 20 years, by and large, we were a traditional church reaching out to traditional Christians. I take responsibility for that. It's nobody's fault. It's my fault. But I just begin to think about what would I do to build bridges to people who are spiritually unresolved? And that began about four or five years of just very painful transition. In those days, we ran about 1,200 in attendance, and we lost about 800 people over four years. And a lot of those people left because there were job situations that involved relocation. But frankly, a lot of people left, and good people in many cases. And I'm not, I'm not talking about these people. They're just people that just didn't see the church the same way, and, and I respect them, and, and, and that's fine. But frankly, there were a number of people that didn't want this church to become what you know of as New Spring today. They didn't want the kids' program to be what it is at New Spring. They wanted it to be institutional in nature. They wanted it to have this 
real strong Christians are the ones who can take the complicated truths. And you know what? You don't have to wonder what I'm talking about. Those kinds of churches are a dime a dozen. I try to help them transition almost every day of my life. Do you know what I begin to see here as God began to change us into what we are today? <laughs> we never dropped below 1,200. For all those years, there was this, you know, there were, just as there were people leaving, there were people pouring in our doors, hundreds of people. Some, there, some of them are, are you guys sitting out here today, and you remember the days I'm talking about. And the thing that began to amaze me was I was watching people who came from some of the most challenging kinds of backgrounds where no faith had been involved at all. And I watched them come to faith and I watched them grow exponentially. This one story could be repeated dozens of times. But I remember a couple who came here and they'd had a very unhealthy addiction and didn't have faith in their lives. And they came to New Spring, and they accepted Christ, and God gave them victory over that addiction. And I remember, and again, I'm a, you know, there's a lot of people that could fit this, what I'm about to say, but he, he asked if, he, if, if, the man asked if he and I could have a meal together, and we had this meal, and he started telling me what a difference God had made in his life, and it was very clear God had made an enormous difference, and he was growing exponentially. The only problem was he didn't come from a church background, and he, nobody had ever told him that profanity is not a good idea. <laughs> so while he's telling me about the difference that God has made in his life, you know, growing up a good Baptist boy like I did, I, I was taking a deep breath. <laughs> and then it hit me. I can teach him that profanity is wrong, but I can't make a dead man come to life. And what's, what's so messed up in so many churches is they're dead people trying to improve themselves into spirituality. I mean, this couple has just grown by leaps and bounds. They're a huge part of New Spring Church, and they impact the lives of so many other people now. That is just where they were, but the growth was real. You see, they had gone from accepting Christ to strong meat in a short period of time. Now, I don't think many of you, but it could be that you're hear from a different situation, and I've made you mad. I don't mean to. If you come from a traditional church setting, if you get what we're about, we'd love to have you here. If not, well, like I said, those churches are a dime a dozen. You won't have trouble finding a church. But we're serious here. We're not even squeamish about it. We're telling the message of, this, of the Word of God that if you want to come to life, you have to accept the truth of God's word, be open to it, obey it, and then put it into practice. And when that happens, you will begin to grow spiritually. Let's pull over the side of the road. I'll pick this up next weekend. As far as I'm in overtime, I can't leave this service without saying if there's anybody here who wants to come to life spiritually, let's do it right now, okay? Would you just bow your head with me, please? Remember, you just believe. So I'm gonna pray a prayer that believes. Pray with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you love me anyway. Thank you for making the truth known to me. I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. Make me come alive. In Jesus' name.
just prayed that prayer, go to any info center and say, I prayed with Mark. They'll give you a box that has some great stuff to help you get started. See you next weekend.